I want to begin this morning with a, an interesting question. What do you do with a dead Savior? What do you do with a dead Savior? Well, if you love Him, you look on in disbelief. If you respect Him, you pay Him your respects. If you fear Him, you seal Him in a tomb. That is exactly what they did with Jesus. Let's take a closer look. We're in Matthew chapter 27. And many women were looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then after the body was removed from the cross and placed in a tomb, we read, And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. So who were these women, and why were they there? Well, Matthew tells us that they were the women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And Luke tells us more about this band of women in the 8th chapter. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Now, these weren't groupies. They were supporters. They were women who traveled with Jesus and the Twelve and supported them and ministered to them. Now, I don't want to seem too chauvinistic here, but I imagine they took care of most of the meals and other domestic duties. They were usually behind the scenes But at the cross, they came into view. Matthew identifies three of them, as do Mark and Luke. And all three mention Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, by name. Luke named her at the top of his list of women who supported Jesus and indicated that Jesus cast seven demons out of her, no doubt explaining her loyalty and commitment to him. Sadly, she's often confused with the immoral woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, but there's no reason to assume she was that woman. She is simply a woman who was delivered by Jesus and who loved him deeply. Matthew next mentions Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Mark identifies her as Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, which is another form of Joseph. Now, two of Jesus' brothers were named James and Joseph, and some have therefore suggested that this Mary was Jesus' mother, but that's very, very doubtful. Matthew refers to this Mary in verse 61 as the other Mary, and I really doubt anyone would refer to the mother of Jesus as the other Mary. 
Besides, when listing the women standing by the cross, John mentions Jesus' mother. In addition to his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Most therefore believe Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was the wife of Clopas, who might also be the Cleopas who walked with her resurrected Lord on the road to Emmaus. And finally, Matthew mentions the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark lists Salome. And John, as we've seen, refers to Jesus' mother's sister. And most conclude this is all the same person. The Salome was Mary's sister and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, making them, of course, Jesus' cousins. You know, I can't help but wonder what she thought as she saw Jesus on the cross, flanked by criminals on either side, because if you recall, she had requested that her sons be on the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom. These are the women who are mentioned. But there are others. Matthew says many women were there looking on from a distance. And before we jump to the conclusion that women were the only ones there at the cross, we need to note that Luke says, and all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. They were seeing Jesus on a cross. The one they thought to be the Savior, who was dead. Now, all the acquaintances would include men and the apostles. It's true the apostles ran from the garden, but there's no need to assume they never came back to see what was going on. They were all there, together, looking on in disbelief. It was illegal. It was illegal to publicly mourn anyone executed under Roman law. So they just stood there in stunned disbelief. Jesus was dead. They had heard him say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. They had seen the guards examine the body and pierce his side. He was dead. They couldn't believe it. They loved him. They believed in him. But now he was gone. He was dead. All they could do was look on in disbelief. And that's all they were doing. They weren't watching, waiting for something else to happen. When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sat by the grave, they weren't waiting for the resurrection. When they left the grave, They left to prepare more spices to anoint his body, a body they fully expected to find there on Easter morning. So what do you do with a dead Savior? If you love him, you just look on in disbelief. If you respect him, You pay him your respects. Let's read on. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. When I die, just bury me in a cardboard box. Have you ever said that? Or something like that? Many of us, I'm sure, have. While contemplating our new body, we tend to diminish the importance of the one we're going to discard. And while it is true that what happens to our body won't matter to us when we're gone, it will probably matter to those left behind. You know, there seems to be something within us that insists that we pay our respects to those who have died. And that has historically been done at a funeral. Now, that does seem to be changing today. Instead of a funeral, some only want to host a celebration of life. Now, remembering the life of the loved one is, of course, part of the reason for gathering together at someone's death. But turning a funeral into a celebration of life and nothing more does, in my opinion, Take the focus off the future life we're anticipating in heaven. Most of us do attend a wake or visitation to comfort family, but we also do so to fulfill a need within ourselves to make certain that the person we cared about is gone. I've, I've heard people comment uh, a sense of a sense of emptiness at not being able to confirm. To see the departed. There's something within us. We, we want to make certain that they have died. And we want to make certain they have a proper burial. When we respect someone who has died, we generally pay our respects by making certain the body is cared for. And that's what Joseph of Arimathea did. Now, we don't meet Joseph until the death of Jesus. And then all four gospel writers record what he did. Matthew tells us he was a rich man from Arimathea. We're not sure where that was, but Luke says it was a city of the Jews. And he tells us that he was a member of the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Mark says he was a prominent member of the council. And the council, you may remember, was the Jewish body that sentenced Jesus to death and took him to Pilate for crucifixion. Where Joseph was while all that was going on, we don't know. But Luke does make it clear he was a good and righteous man and had not consented to the council's plan or their action. In fact, Luke says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the Messiah. And Matthew says he'd become a disciple of Jesus. But John notes he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Anyway, when Jesus died, he came out of the shadows. Mark notes he gathered up his courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate summoned the centurion to find out if Jesus was dead, and the centurion affirmed that he was. 
The Jews had asked that all three have their legs broken so they would die quickly and could be removed from their crosses before the Sabbath began at six o'clock that night. When they approached Jesus to break his legs, they discovered he was already dead. And an overzealous soldier made sure by piercing his side with his spear. So, yes, Jesus was dead. Pilate therefore ordered that the body be given to Joseph for burial. And Joseph, along with another member of the council, Nicodemus, another secret disciple, the one who came to Jesus by night, took down the body and prepared it for burial. John notes that Nicodemus brought the spices, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and Joseph brought the linen cloth. Together they prepared the body for burial, according to Jewish custom, and laid it in Joseph's own tomb, a new tomb that had been hewn out of rock and was located in a garden near where the crucifixion had taken place. Together they rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. They both respected Jesus as a great teacher, and may have even hoped that he was the Messiah, but now all they had was a dead Savior. And they didn't anticipate a resurrection. You don't bury someone with 75 pounds of spices if you expect him to arise in three days. He was dead. And what do you do with a dead Savior? If you respect him, you pay him your respects. If you fear him, you seal him in a tomb. <laughs> Let's read on. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, isn't it ironic, that the only ones who remembered what Jesus said about rising after three days were his enemies. They didn't believe it, but they remembered it. And they assumed the disciples remembered it and were afraid they would steal the body on the third day to make it look as if he had risen. So they went to Pilate on the Sabbath, no less, for that would have been the day after the preparation, and asked Pilate to secure the grave. They said they didn't want the last deception to be worse than the first. The first deception was that he was the Messiah. The last would be that he had risen from the grave. Pilate's response has been translated a couple ways. The NIV translates it, take a guard. 
Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Most translators, however, prefer something more like the New American Standard. You have a guard. If he said, take a guard, it could be inferred that he was giving the Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. And we generally think of the soldiers who guarded the tomb as Roman soldiers. And I probably said that at times. But the text actually says, you have a guard. And that seems to indicate that Pilate was telling the chief priest to use their own temple guard to secure the tomb. And that would explain why they reported back to the priests after the resurrection. Now, it's true that the priests said that they'd keep the guards out of trouble with the governor if they said they'd fallen asleep and disciples came and stole the body. But even temple guards would be in trouble if they fell asleep while guarding a body of someone under Pilate's jurisdiction. The bottom line is that we can't be certain whether the guards were Roman guards or temple guards. And similarly, we don't know if it was a Roman seal that secured the stone or the high priest's seal. Either way, the tomb was officially sealed and guarded by those who feared the body would disappear. And I'm glad it was. By doing so, Jesus' enemies made it impossible for anything to happen to the body of Jesus short of a resurrection. Their seal became a seal authenticating that Jesus had indeed arisen from the grave. So what do you do with a dead Savior? If you love Him, you look on in disbelief. If you respect Him, you pay Him your respects. If you fear Him, you seal Him in a tomb. But if He's alive, you serve Him. You serve Him. I trust that that is what you are doing with a once dead but now very much alive Savior. We serve a risen Savior. Let's celebrate that fact together this morning. And let's never forget it.